Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, trying to avert global catastrophe from climate change. Two degrees is a death sentence. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock and we need to act now. But what part does defence play in the problem and what part could a military mindset play in the solution? We have to put ourselves on what might be called a warlike footing. It needs a war to get you onto a post-war footing. And I'm not quite sure what that war is going to be. Also in SITREP, Royal Air Force jets fly from Israel for the first time in more than 70 years as the country builds its Arab ties. The fact that those relationships are now out in the open make it easier for a country like the United Kingdom to engage with both sides. And do we need an Afghanistan inquiry? This week, the UK is hosting its largest and arguably most important ever global political gathering. Welcome to the opening ceremony for the World Leaders Summit of COP26. Governments must fight for their people's future and we will hold them accountable for it. I demand the world leaders to speak up for climate action, to tackle our global problems together and build a pathway to a maximum of 1.5 degrees of global warming. COP26 has been billed as a last chance to get the world onto a track which could prevent climate change devastating the planet. The longer we fail to act, the worse it gets, and the higher the price when we are eventually forced by catastrophe to act. Because humanity has long since run down the clock on climate change. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, and we need to act now. Boris Johnson evoked imagery from Hollywood disaster movies as he tried to engender a sense of urgency among fellow world leaders to cut net global carbon emissions to zero in just under 30 years. Now, the ultimate strategic goal of that is to limit man-made temperature rises to an absolute maximum of 1.5 Celsius. That is seen as the tipping point for a spiralling environmental disaster. Two degrees is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, was one of many voices at COP26 warning the chain reaction of climate change threatens peace and security. Now, bear in mind, we've already used up around 1.1 of those one and a half degrees. Climate change is already happening. Ali Betty, who's High Commissioner of Niger's N3 initiative, says that climate change is also already driving conflict. The terrorism in the Sahel is not coming from nowhere. A large number of conflicts in the world are now considered to be linked to the combined consequences of desertification. It's another chain reaction he's talking about there. Farming land turns to desert, food and water run short, people then move in their tens of thousands and compete and then fight for ever scarcer resources. That makes climate change a key defence issue. The UK's Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. We will have to deal with the consequences of a failed climate change policy if that happens. We have to deal with the consequences of migrant flows, of breaking down of communities, after fights over rare resources, 
uh, border frictions, which will no doubt grow as, as climate change increases. Let's bring in Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark, and Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Paul, given the threat to life that climate change poses in its own right, how big a part of the risk in all this is about security and conflict, bearing in mind it's a second, even a third order effect? It is certainly a, a significant element, the whole issue of uh, security and conflict. I would be very cautious about seeing military responses as being the way to go. The problem is that with the whole risk of climate breakdown, if you think that you can prevent the consequences affecting you, if need be by military means, for example, in response to failed states or indeed to migration, I think that's a very big mistake because the point is it's doing nothing about the underlying causes. Isn't what Ben Wallace is talking about is defence having to pick up the pieces if climate change creates conflicts and indeed you you heard from niger it is creating conflict it certainly has but the big danger is seeing that as the answer if you like the more you concentrate on this as a defense phenomenon as a security phenomenon you're actually forgetting that this is the one key phenomenon in some ways not unlike unlike covid which has to be prevented mike the security risks are not front and centre in this COP26. It is about people, understandably. But behind the scenes, does that conflict risk, do you think, carry weight in building that sense of urgency? Well, I think it's certainly beginning to because we've talked about this for the last 20 years and Paul you know, was writing about this years ago. But now, the sort of thing that Paul was writing about is now out there and it's real. Desertification in the Sahel, even now as we speak, the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia, the reservoir behind it is being filled. And that is going to restrict Nile waters to South Sudan and Sudan and Egypt. And they're going berserk about this. The Himalayan glaciers are melting. So yes, it is becoming real and it's beginning at COP26 to really filter into the debate at policy-making level. And that's important. And, and yet, despite this sense of urgency, ahead of the summit, we had expectations increasingly managed downwards, particularly when we heard two key leaders for China and Russia were not going to be there. On day one, the Prince of Wales appealed to leaders to unite to fight this shared threat. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us just how devastating a global cross-border threat can be. Climate change and biodiversity loss are no different. In fact, they pose an even greater existential threat to the extent that we have to put ourselves on what might be called a warlike footing. So can the Prince's suggestion of using a military mindset help world leaders to properly tackle climate change here? A question I put to Sir Jeremy Greenstock, who spent five years as the UK's ambassador to the United Nations, including the lead-up to the 2003 Iraq war. Well, I think he's indicating the seriousness of the degree of action we need to take. Uh, so that there is a simile there that people will understand. But people out there are not expecting a war. And it's very understandable that you need to put yourself on a war footing if an enemy is marching over the hill or over the sea towards you. But that's not how people will see it. People have short-term targets for their 
prosperity and their jobs and their health, etc., they do not fully understand to what extent the short-term desires of a population has to compete with the money to be put into very urgent action to stop using fossil fuels. We have, uh, though, seen countries on significant occasions in the past agreeing when there is a crisis happening in the here and now. UN Security Council resolutions on the invasion of Kuwait in 1991, the creation of ISAF for Afghanistan in 2001 was a United Nations agreement. So can the climate negotiators learn something from this? I'm not sure. I, I think these images are too strong for the moment because Europe is way ahead and the UK is with the Europeans mainly in its rhetoric and in its policy planning. But the US is in a different place, slightly behind Europe and Asia and then Africa and other continents are miles behind because their first priority is to bring their peoples out of poverty. So unless there is really big money on the table for the emerging economies, global action to mend climate change is not going to happen. You talk about countries understandably having priorities about poverty in the here and now. The problem with this is it is essentially a slow motion catastrophe. It is turning around the super tanker. Now, Boris Johnson used the language of Hollywood films, so if I can extrapolate a bit, if there was an asteroid identified that would hit Earth in a month that would cause millions of people to lose their homes and food and water supplies, would the United Nations or the international community outside of that have a mechanism to prepare for and try to avert the worst of that in the space of a month with the time pressure there? No, um, probably not. And it's not a useful analogy in my view because it doesn't reflect the real life approach to climate change. The UK reduced its emissions fastest from 2012 onwards because it replaced coal with gas. The number one priority in the short to medium term, that is in this decade, is to get coal out of the system. To do that, you have to allow gas to be produced and gas is being demonised by the climate movement and by most of the developed nations. You can't get rid of coal without gas in the early stages. And solar and wind and hydro and nuclear are not available in the volumes to replace fossil fuels in this decade. So people are missing the short-term targets while focusing on the long-term ones. And that is a policy misjudgment. Let's finish on a version of where we started. The Prince of Wales talked of being on a warlike footing. The Queen, in her re recorded address, I felt potentially alluded to being on a post-war footing. It has sometimes been observed that what leaders do for their people today is government and politics. But what they do for the people of tomorrow, that is statesmanship. Well, I, I rather admire the way the Queen is addressing that because the inventiveness of the international community after the Second World War has led to 75 years of global peace on the whole. But it needs a war to get you onto a post-war footing. 
and I'm not quite sure what that war is going to be, to get people into the war phase. So they're trying to engender a crisis urgency into this. COP26 should have been about the 2020s, and it's not. So Jeremy Greenstock, uh, Professor Paul Rogers, one of the things that the Queen has alluded to, and I, I thought the point was made really powerfully as well by uh, Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, y- y- you can't have national solutions. There has to be unity here. Can you see any lessons from history, and particularly the striving for peace, in a way to actually get the people in the room to put their individual priorities aside and work collectively? Well, I mean, the, the main ones you think about, obviously, are after the First and Second World Wars, and they're frankly not very much to write home about. But that doesn't mean we can't do it in the future. In many ways, we are in a new situation, because essentially, we are now in a world in which it is a common problem. We've not very done very well on COVID. We're going to have to do very much better on climate breakdown. Without the Chinese and Russian leaders in the room, but with national delegations there, what what are the chances of a meaningful outcome from COP26, do you think? Well, that will all depend on what happens when everyone's gone home and how much implementation there is. And I have to say, I think, you know, the Chinese and Russian leaders, they missed a trick themselves because both of them, in their different ways, they've, they've both got some good stories to tell, particularly the Chinese, in their technological advances in renewables. And they've lost the opportunity to present those. And it makes it look as if they are disinterested. And I think they may come to regret it. It's very important that, that the United States and China... Russia and India, the big four in the in world politics for the next 50 years, it's very important that those four are able to take some sort of lead in implementation to make this a reality. If they do, everything is possible. If they don't, or if only two of the four don't, uh, then everything becomes very, very difficult indeed. Well, we heard the Defence Secretary saying earlier, if there is a failure to tackle t- climate change, Defence will have to deal with the consequences. But he also acknowledged the part defence has to play in tackling the problem. Now, campaigners say military emissions are huge. Uh, One group says the US Department of Defence is the world's largest single institutional carbon emitter. Next week, as COP26 continues, a new military emissions tracking project will be launched by the Conflict and Environment Observatory. And I asked its research director, Doug Weir what the scale of military carbon emissions is? Honestly, we don't know. Um, There have been a number of estimates. So, for example, the US Department of Defence is the equivalent of a country, somewhere between Peru and Portugal. So, conceivably, it should have a table in Glasgow and be negotiating alongside the other countries there. Um, But overall, we have a very, very poor idea of just how much militaries emit because they don't report on how much they emit. Do we have any idea where the UK fits in the scale of things? Yes, so this depends on who you talk to um, and where you look. Um, The UK Ministry of Defence will say that they emit about uh, 1.8 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent every year. Um, But that only looks at the emissions from some sources that they have. Others who have looked at the UK Ministry of Defence and the military defence sector that supplies it would argue that it's closer to 11 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent and that's every year and that's about 6 million cars or so but there are a lot of uncertainties in here because of this really poor reporting. 
Why is it that it's so hard to get data on military climate emissions when we seem to have a lot of data about industrial climate emissions? Essentially, it's a historical problem, really. So if we go back to the Kyoto Protocol um, back in 1997, as a condition of joining it, the US insisted that military emissions would be exempt from reporting under the protocol. Fast forward to 2015 and the Paris Agreement, that made military emissions reporting just voluntary. So there hasn't been the same external pressure on militaries to report their emissions that there has been on the other sectors. And because of that, you know, now we've got militaries that are starting to look at this issue because, you know, in the case of the UK, we have legislation passed, which is calling for net zero by 2050 across all government emissions. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, now we need to start looking at this. But they found that they're actually a lot further behind. We've heard strong words from the UK Defence Secretary, from the NATO Secretary General at COP26, saying that it's not a choice. Militaries have to go green. Uh, are we seeing actions that match the words? I don't think we're seeing the actions yet. There has been a very interesting shift over the last 12 months. You know, we had the outcome from the NATO summit from last year with Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, pushing for uh, emissions reporting across NATO. But at the same time, it's clear that across the alliance, not all countries are as engaged on this as others are. The UK MOD, to its credit, you know, they've been putting in the work, the research to look at this and start framing the questions and the issues that they're going to face. Doug Weir from the Conflict and Environment Observatory. Mike Clark, however committed mentally governments, military leaders are, none of them want to compromise an iota of their military capability to possibly fall behind. Is that going to undermine attempts for militaries to decarbonise? Well, um, the the military can certainly go green in the sense that the military is a big organisation. It owns a lot of land. And so there's all sorts of things they can do to make themselves as an organisation be more green. And they're doing that. But when it comes to the tanks and the planes. Exactly. When it comes to fighting battles, then they're reliant on green technologies, which are not yet mature. So yes, they say, they're going down that road and that they they insist in briefings that they offer that going green is not something that will take the edge off their battle winning abilities but that is a bit of a philosopher's stone really which will come in some considerable time if you say to any military commander you know are you going to use dirty nasty fuel which will get you there more quickly and be more sustainable or are you going to use slightly more marginal green fuel that you know what the answer will be so they they are reliant on technology and they're quite a long way away from being able to say yes we can go to war or we can go into conflict operations and still be green that's a that's a long way away i think it's going to be very difficult for them i mean i saw something on the web today i can't vouch for it precisely but it reckons that the the queen elizabeth on its long-term deployment just the carrier alone not just all supporting ships uh, is using enough fuel equivalent to an average car driving 200 million miles now that may be true or not but of course it does give you an idea uh, of uh, how big a user it is inevitably for big items like that. The military can go part of the way, and I think it's a necessary part of the wider function. But I think the, I think the far more important thing from the military, including from NATO, is to be much more blunt to the politicians and say, we have to decarbonize, otherwise you can't expect us, the military, uh, to sort out the problems of the world. Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies, I thank you for your thoughts on that this week. News, discussions and analysis. This 
is Zidrab. Now, Royal Air Force planes have flown from Israel for the first time since 1948 when the country declared its independence. Six typhoon jets and 150 British personnel took part in the Israeli exercise Blue Flag alongside the US, India, France, Germany, Greece and Italy. British F-35s have flown alongside Israeli jets in recent years, flying from Cyprus, but their deployment from Israeli soil is perhaps the most open display yet of the UK's defence links to Israel. I asked Dr Guy Burton, who is a Middle East expert from the Brussels School of Governance, how significant he thinks this is. Well, I think it's very significant given uh, the nature of British and Israeli relations, which have very much stepped up in the last year or so. Um, you, you will probably be aware that uh, in December there was a military agreement signed between Israel and the, and the United Kingdom. And there is obviously a lot of uh, over, mutual overlap in terms of sort of shared interests between Israel and Britain. Uh, especially in the region um, regarding you know, sort of counter-terrorism issues, uh, concerns with particular states like Iran, which is perhaps more uh, concerning for uh, Israel than it is for the UK, but you know, shared interests there nonetheless. Why now? I mean, you mentioned the signing of that military agreement, but why now for the signing of that? And also why now for, for something like this exercise when you know France, Poland, Greece have all taken part um, several years ago? What we are seeing are, are more military exercises. Um, I mean, if you were going to say that there was a political dimension to this, one could be related to the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which is currently sort of in, in a state of flux. But also, I mean, look at it from the British perspective. We have now left the European Union and you know Britain has very much got this global Britain brand that it's trying to promote and to push um, and that means emphasizing its connections and ties uh, with partners around the world. It seems the UK has been a bit shy on this as a defense relationship. How significant also is it that frankly Israel's relations with some of its Arab neighbors have you know significantly improved over the last couple of years? the wider regional context has changed. I mean, we have seen in the Middle East uh, we, a period, a, a decade of, about, of, of a state of flux. Since the Arab uprising, the emergence of, you know, uh, non-state actors like the Islamic State, there has been a decade of considerable instability um, to the point that some of these uh, Gulf states, for example, like Bahrain and the UAE in particular, have made peace with, with Israel because there is shared interest there. And I think the fact that they have those, that what those relationships are now out in the open make it easier for, for a country like, like the United Kingdom uh, to, partic- to engage with both sides. And also at the end, we saw a real show of force from the US flying a B-1B Lancer bomber that is capable of carrying bunker buster bombs that could penetrate Iranian underground nuclear facilities and and you saw that accompanied uh, over their own territory by Saudi and Bahraini jets. It's quite telling I think that the United States has done this because yes you know Joe Biden came in with the intention of returning to the deal but also expanding it but uh, he's also said recently in in recent weeks you know that other options are on the table and I think this is a, a, a demonstration of that. How's that show of force going to go down in Tehran? Not very well. Um, you know, ter- uh, Iran is obviously trying to emphasize that, you know, it is prepared to talk, but there is a sense uh, amongst in Washington and perhaps in some European capitals that, uh, you know, that the Iranians are trying to spin this out to the point where the nuclear deal becomes redundant. Dr. Guy Burton, uh, 
Mike Clark, I suppose I was asking at the start there about the significance for the UK and the RAF, but actually how significant is it for Israel to be seen with RAF jets flying from its soil? This is a big tick in the box for the Israeli Defence Forces. Of course, it upsets a lot of Israel's op- uh, opponents who see this as legitimising Israel, but that's part of the political cost of this. But the Israelis won't mind that one bit. I mean, this is them showing that they have a strategic role to play, not just a role of a, of a spoiler or a problem or a conflict conflict area they have a strategic role to play in the broader middle east so they're very very keen on this lastly this week a 20-year military presence which cost billions of pounds and more than 450 british lives and ended where it started with the taliban in charge of afghanistan no one doubts there are some hard lessons to be learned but what's the best way the chair of the commons defense committee is pushing in parliament for a public inquiry into Afghanistan. His fellow Conservative MP and fellow veteran Bob Seeley doesn't think that's the right answer. As someone who served on the Afghan campaign a lot, uh, along with many of your listeners, some kind of really intelligent wash-up is always needed to actually make sure we learn the lessons. So as well as a lot of this work being done at a regimental and brigade levels and army levels, I'm all for having something being done at a higher level. But I don't think a... A politicised trawl is actually the best way to achieve that. Certainly, there are a few who would want to repeat the bruising experience of the seven-year-long Chilcot inquiry into Iraq. But advocates of an inquiry say it doesn't have to be like that. Frank Ledwidge is a senior lecturer at Portsmouth University and also a military veteran of campaigns including Iraq. And he also served as a civilian in Afghanistan. What we'd like to see is something more like a country that really takes defence seriously, Israel, the kind of thing they do after they fail in their military campaigns, which is a quick but very honest appraisal of what happened, conducted by an independent panel and reporting in six to 12 months. And such an inquiry, and I'm thinking here of a particular one called the Vinograd Inquiry, conducted after their disastrous 2006 war in Lebanon, resulted in the resignation in that case of the Prime Minister and the Chief of Defence Staff, but also a wholesale reform of the way they did defence. Now that's a country that takes defence seriously. What are the most important questions that you feel an inquiry needs to address if it's only 12 12 months long? Yeah, three things. You, You know, you have to keep the remit very tight. And I would suggest that remit might look something like this. What were the strategic purposes behind the campaign? And was the nature and scale of our deployment appropriate? Secondly, did the cross-Whitehall arrangements, and this is really, really crucial, work? Was the government working together or was it working against each other? And finally, what were the problems with our intelligence? And there clearly were massive problems with intelligence. How did the information flow? How honest were we with it, about it? And work, did we do it well enough? And with a tight remit and an efficient panel, you can report quickly. I think for me, it's important to get to a truth which is usable and understandable. And the way you do that is is through people who have an understand, a sympathetic but critical eye over the armed forces and what they try to do. That is not necessarily in a judge-led, a lawyer-led public inquiry. And I would feel much more comfortable having confidence that you're going to learn something, having a relatively small team of academics and senior soldiers working on a significant, effectively strategic level wash-up that also takes lessons from an operational and indeed tactical level. 
I would personally have no confidence you're going to get that from an Iraq-style public inquiry. All you're going to get is, is throwing mud at the politicians who let us in there. Bob Seeley, and before him we heard Frank Lentwidge. Uh, Mike, uh, I think most people would, would, would feel you know, the same strategic aim is to prevent a repeat of mistakes. Is an inquiry the right way to achieve that? It's something that people always want um, because it's sort of a pseudo legal process and it puts documents in the public domain. Usually in the past with these big inquiries, they don't tell us anything we don't by then already know. There's lots of public accounts, there's lots of parliamentary work, parliamentary committees produce very detailed reports. And so normally we actually know what the, what the real story is. And when these inquiries appear, they just give us chapter and verse. They give us the particular documents that tell us that we know what we know. Um, but I think both Bob Seeley and Frank Ledwidge were right in the sense that if we're going to have a lessons learned process that is any use, it's got to be quite quick and it's got to be very tightly created. If we have a grand inquiry into something like Afghanistan, then it will run as long as the Chilcot inquiry did because, you know, there, there are lots and lots of elements that have to come into it. Is, that's the lesson we learned from the Chilcot inquiry on the best way to learn lessons, isn't it? Do it quickly. Yes, <laughs> don't do it again. But I have to say, the government is making efforts to implement Chilcot. There is a there's a series of guidelines which are always trotted out at all policy meetings and documents where they say these are the Chilcot principles. Are we happy that we're sticking to them? Which shows an effect which maybe people never thought would happen. Mike, thank you so much for your time this week. Uh, that is it for the programme. Thanks to all our guests you can of course keep in touch with us on twitter at bfbs sitrep online at bfbs.com slash sitrep there you can listen back to past programs you can find links to subscribe to the podcast for now though from me james hurst thanks for listening bye bye